Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 78, recorded April 5th, 2012. Yep, 78. The lucky 78. Did you know 78's a lucky number? I never heard that. I thought it was 42. Oh, that's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference, right? Uh, I was trying for it. I might have missed the number. I think it's 42, isn't it? Isn't it 42? I think I think you're right. I think it is 42. Anyways, why is 78 lucky? Because, hey, look how far we've come. 78 <laughs> episodes. That's a lot of luck, I'll tell you, man. And really, if you count the two April Fool's joke, it's really 80. Oh, good point. So, 80. Very lucky. Right. So, yeah. So, episode 78, and we're going to be covering uh, the original series episodes or issues 28, 29, and 30. Came out at the beginning of 1992, and the 24th part of our 1990 series. Yes, 24. Uh, that's 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 a good number there too. Is it? Is it don't lucky? you think? Is I don't lucky? know. It just seems like a big number. It this is a big is number. 24th time we've done this this decade. Cool. <laughs> and these are, I mean, in general, I mean, you get clunkers every once in a while, or maybe three, but in general, you know, these are the, I think, some of the best Star Trek comics. Uh, for the most part, DC I have liked comics. them too. These three might not be my favorites, but well, they still say that thing about clunker. <laughs> Sometimes three of them. Yeah. Well, in case everybody forgot, the first issue is going to be a continuation of what we covered in episode seventy-six with the whole Plinkin family or colony or whatever it is. Uh, then we get a one-off, and then it starts another series. So it's kind of like we're ending one series, we get a one-off, which may not be that great, and then we get a start of a new series, which is more of just like a startup issue. Sure. And that'll happen from time to time. Yeah. The, the, the way these just fall into our episode scheduling. But uh, yeah, it's kind of nicer if you can have a three-parter in one episode. Which we will next time we do the original series. It'll be the last three issues of this four-part series. Which is kicked off with 30. Yep. Okay, speaking of which, shall I uh, do the honors of the first one? Yeah, let's just jump into it. Okay. Uh, Issue number 28 is titled Truth or Treachery, published date February 1992. The creative team is made up of Howard Weinstein, the writer. Penciler is Brandon Peterson. Letters, Bob Pinaha. Inker, Scott Hanna. Colorist, Tom McGraw. Editor is Robert Greenberger. The cover presents McCoy in the center with a very self-satisfied look on his face and in the uniform brass of an admiral glistening with a reflective light. Spock's face is partially shown to McCoy's left and an alien female's face to McCoy's right. To some degree, Spock and the alien female appear to be merging at the side of their heads, kind of like a Siamese twin. The text at the top says... He's not a doctor. He's an admiral. 
The story opens on a Pilkoran colony planet called Mataga 5. McCoy and Spock are reporting to Kirk on the massacre that reduced the 900-person colony to 99 dead bodies and one survivor. Spock conjectures that the other 800 colonists were likely disintegrated. Later, on the Enterprise Bridge, Spock is showing Kirk an enhanced image from the colony's sensor array. It appears to be of a new Romulan ship design, which Spock points out corroborates Lita's testimony. Kirk points out that all this seems too convenient. However, Kirk says to set course for Pilkerin 3 when all the recovered bodies are aboard. They need to return the colonists' remains home. In the sickbay, Sulu tells Lita, which is one of the sole survivors of the massacre, that they are returning her home to Pilkerin. In response, she says she does not know of Pilkerin. Her colony is originally from Mataga 1. She freaks out and says she needs to go back to Mataga 1. She is so freaked, she has to be sedated. Dr. Popov, Chekhov's niece, makes a log entry expressing concerns over Lita's mental health. Even while sedated, Lita's sleep is very fitful. A look into her dreams reveals probable manipulation by the powers that be when she was a small child. Was she brainwashed by a scheming, heartless government? A sleep-deprived Dr. Popoff discusses her concerns with her Chekhov. When all of a sudden an alert sounds, Lita is in cardiac arrest. Later, McCoy, Kirk, and Spock discuss Lita's condition. Dr. Popov's quick reaction to the alert saved Lita's life, but now she has entered a catatonic state that she may never recover from. McCoy reports on weird brain waves, but other than that, no medical explanation has been found to explain the catatonic state. Based on the head trauma incident involving Tread that Kirk mentions, they conjecture the catatonic state could be a Pilkerin healing process similar to what Vulcans do. She may come out of it by herself, as Tread did long ago on the Farragut. McCoy states that he wants a view into Lita's head. It's the only way to know if she's healing or dying. Spock volunteers to attempt a mind meld with Lita. Kirk gives the go-ahead. After Spock attempts to explain what he experienced in Lita's mind, he saw two completely separate realities, separated by an impenetrable wall. One is the reality of a small colony of Mataga 5, and the other a large and complete world. The trauma she is experiencing goes beyond the colony attack. Sulu and Uhura meet briefly in the mess, just as he is leaving to meet Nina. Sulu expresses concern over how Chekhov is taking their relationship, and Uhura assures him Chekhov is getting used to it. To herself, Ahura thinks that she is not getting used to it. In sickbay, McCoy and Spock show Kirk the results of the brain scans. The scan uncovered electronic implants in Lita's brain. They conjecture the electronic implants are actually inserting memories that Lita did not experience herself. McCoy goes on to say he took the liberty of checking a random sampling of the deceased colonists, and they all had implants too. They wonder who would have done this to the colonists and why. Kirk asks McCoy if he can remove the implants. When McCoy says he is pretty sure he can, Kirk orders him to do so and to give Lita her life back. 
After McCoy removes the implants, Lita completely forgets about Mataga 5 and the colony. She now says she is a Pilkerin and wants to go home. All she remembers is being an orphan on Pilkerin and ending up in a gifted child program. The next thing she remembers, she is on the Enterprise. As Kirk, Spock, and McCoy leave the sickbay, Kirk states that without Lita's testimony concerning the attack, the only proof they have the Romulans did it are hazy sensor images. They conjecture that someone is trying to stir up hostilities between the Federation and the Romulans. But who? If the Pilkerans are behind it, they might have set up the evidence at Mataga 5. McCoy points out this whole thing began with Victoria. It was she who got the Enterprise into the position to investigate the supposed massacre of the supposed colony. Spock points out that if it is a Pilkerin colony, and if they do not ask for the Federation's assistance in the investigation, it will be difficult to justify their continued involvement after they return Lita and the colonists' remains. Kirk says if someone is up to no good, we are going to find out who it is. McCoy, masquerading as Admiral McCoy of Starfleet Tactical, sends a message to Pilkor, informing them that the Enterprise was destroyed by Romulans near Mataga 5. A state of hostilities exists, and the Federation warns Pilkor to steer their shipping lanes away from the war zone for their own safety. After the broadcast, Kirk explains that if the Pilkerans wanted to stir up hostilities between the Romulans and the Federation, let them believe they have. Later on Pilkor, Victoria is in the office of Minister Pitkemni, watching Admiral McCoy's performance. The minister seems to have all the cards, and all the depressed Victoria can do is tell the minister now that she got what she wanted. It's time for Victoria to get what she was promised. The vile minister says they may need her services again. So, Tread will stay in custody, and Victoria will not leave Pilcor without the minister's permission and an armed escort. At that latest betrayal, Victoria attacks and grabs the minister by the throat. She swings her around and throws the minister into her office chair. Victoria storms out of the room. At her home, Victoria is wondering where Jim is when suddenly Kirk materializes in her room. They talk over tea, and Victoria comes clean with him. Kirk asks if she knows where Tread is being held. She says yes, and Kirk calls up Scotty to scan for Tread at the specific coordinates, and when found, beam him up. Tread and uh, Victoria's reunion on the transporter pad is nice, but does not get in the way of Tread talking to Kirk about how they trusted him to see through the Pilkerin lies. Later, via the captain's log, we find out that they exposed Pilkor's plans to start a war between the Romulans and them. If the Pilkerans ever decide to end their isolation, the Federation will engage in talks with them, but until then, they are a pariah among civilized worlds. The end. Wow, that was abrupt. Wasn't it abrupt? It was abrupt. It seemed like things were taking a while to develop, but it was kind of cool that there was this mystery going on. But then when they finally started uncovering things and you've started to know what was going on, it's like, bam, whiplash. It's done. Yeah, it's over. Yep. 
Yeah, I didn't care for that part. Yeah, well, it's another case where they thought they had a three-parter, and uh, <laughs> you know, they decided eh, there isn't quite enough here. Let's let's cut it down. But why cut it down at the end? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It just again, just just like it was getting good. I, I was actually enjoying it. Okay, we're gonna find out why they're holding him, how they're gonna get him out, and then just like one panel, he's beamed up, and it's over. The whole right. story. And then you get a side note. Oh, by the way, we captured them and, and slapped their hands and all's good. The end. Yeah. And something I didn't mention is that Tread and uh, Victoria did end up leaving and going to Earth. Right. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, shame on you, kid. Yeah. That's the first thing I was thinking. It was like, as all this is going on, I'm thinking, oh, my God, look at all this stuff going on. Okay, so they're exposed as the jerks they are, and oh, my God, that minister. What a mm, witch. Um, but then it's like, well, now that they've exposed this, and obviously Tread and uh, Victoria are part of the exposure, it's like, well, they they can stay on Pilcor. I mean, the, these, these people are nasty in the government. They'll probably kill them. So sure enough, they ended up uh, relocating to uh, Earth. I wonder if they actually were able to bring all of their wealth or part of their wealth with them. Mm. Yeah, they were very well-to-do. They were very well-to-do. That house, that mansion that they were staying in, uh, that we were exposed to in the first issue mm-hmm. of this story, um, that thing was massive. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think about the whole wealth and status that he would lose by relocating. Yeah. But if the if the kind of life you're going to have is have family members kidnapped and then uh, held for ransom as the remaining person is is manipulated to do things like that, I wouldn't want to stay on that planet. <laughs> yeah, you might want to leave. Yeah, I don't care how much money I'm losing. <laughs> uh, anyways, anyways, I I, I kind of like the first issue, and I like this issue up until that last page or two. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, go to commercial. We're going to explain everything when we get back. And, uh, and then it did. Over. Yeah, and then it's over, right? Yeah. What do you think so, about the art? Uh, I thought the art was good. Yeah, uh, it's, o- better... it's okay. I think I think the previous one had better art. Really? Uh, yeah. I, I didn't go back and check. I mean, in the and the thing that kind of disappointed me is that first opening title page on the inside. Right. Where it shows McCoy speaking on the on the uh, communicator and Spock scanning around. It's like, especially McCoy, it, he just didn't look good. Mm. And then there's there's another one where, yeah, it's like, uh, it's page two. Um, I mean, Spock looks like William Defoe. He's like his <laughs> upper his upper lip, you know, between his nose and and, and his top lip. Right. It's like, oh my, it's huge. I mean, he looks like the Green Goblin. I don't know what. It's just. It just didn't look like Nimoy. Well, and his eyes aren't looking in the same direction. It's like he has a lazy eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, the big thing on the on the, as far as art on this one was on page five. Chekhov's niece. Oh, looks nothing like she looked in the other books. Not at all. Not and at all. Here she looks like she's maybe twenty years older. I know she's supposed to be tired, but yeah. Her hair seems to be longer and darker, and yeah. she looks well. Yeah, in the old. first one, she was a young kid. I mean, wasn't right. she like straight out of medical school? Twenties, yeah. And 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 this depiction is more well into the thirties, in a pretty haggard thirties. 
Right. And and she's only in it for like four panels. And and in fact, I didn't know who it was at first. No. No. Um another thing is they went so extreme on this and I kind of wondered why. Why was it so necessary? Well, when we get to the next issue, we find out why they I think why they did that. Uh why they did what? What do you mean? Make her look so haggard and tired. Oh. Uh okay. Well, we'll get to it. You'll you know. You'll you'll know. I mean, if you don't know now, you will know when we get to the next issue. Um, and and that same page, uh, bottom of page five, uh, Chekhov, you know, where he's saying hallucinations. That's yep. not very complimentary drawing of Walter Koning. <laughs> no. Anyway. Now, I, 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 now that you mention it, there's a lot of shots in here that that didn't quite right, quite look right. The only one I actually wrote down was that one, but. Now that I'm looking at it, uh, you're 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 right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, and not in regards to art, but what's the deal with Ohura uh, and Sulu now? Well, I mean, I mean, doesn't it completely seem like Ohura uh, has a thing for Sulu? Right. So, and she's been very complimentary to him for the last several issues. Exactly. And but, they but, do seem to hang out a lot when they're on shore leave lately. But where's that coming from? Is that just that's that's just unique here to the last couple of issues, right? Yes, I, I mean, think so. There's I no so. backing up of that in any of the movies or anything else, right? No, not that I'm aware of. I yeah. no. I've never seen in the movies, TV shows, no way. I mean, the only thing, the only <laughs> The only guy Ohura had eyes for, apparently, was Scotty, and that was in the late movies. Right. Six. Right. Well, she did kind of flirt with Spock in the very, very beginning. Uh, in, like, the Charlie X episode. I, I feel she like did? She, yeah. If you go back oh, and watch it, it seems like she's flirting around with him a little bit when okay. when they're doing the whole musical number. Okay. Where he's okay. playing his, his lira or whatever it is. Uh-huh. Cool. But, but anyways, yeah, I, I find it odd, and I'll, I think it's going to play out definitely in in the the last three issues of this new story arc that we're about to start. Yeah. Well, but just yes. seems weird and and out of nowhere. Right. So how'd you like when Kirk was demoting Admiral McCoy? When he was basically saying that he wouldn't be he. He does. He's not going to be an admiral or whatever. Well, I mean, uh, Kirk's actually after he gets done with his performance, which mm-hmm. of course McCoy is thoroughly enamored with his his acting abilities. <laughs> jokingly, Kirk comes up behind him and starts to take off his uh, his admiral jacket uniform thing. Right. Which I, I and then as he's doing it, McCoy is saying, uh, "You know, I can kind of get used to this uh, admiral stuff." Right. And then, and then of course, uh, Kirk says, "You should live so long." It's like, that's perfect. I love that. That is great. It, it was funny, but it does bear the question, wh- why is that? Why is Kirk still holding on to that jacket? Is he hoping to get promoted again? Oh, what, oh, well, what do you mean he, he's holding on to it? I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, he's not Admiral. He's Captain now. I know, I know. But he's, he's trying to get it off of... Uh... He's just jokingly getting it off of McCoy. Yeah, I know, but why do they have it on? Why do they have it at all? Well, you know, ship stores can whip up uh, 
you know, tribal villagers thing. So yeah, oh, I, I, I see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I, I, mean, I got the feeling you, that you, you it was think this is be... Kirk's old uniform. I thought it was Kirk's old uniform. Oh, right. I, didn't, I didn't even think and that. But and that's, and that's why it kind of is big on McCoy. Uh huh. Okay, I, I, I can see that. Okay, I thought that's I, what I they you. were going for. But yeah, you're right. They can. It could have been anybody's. I mean, it could have just been something they whipped, whipped it up. up. Yeah. All right. Never mind. <laughs> but yeah, just, that could, that could thought be Kirk's I was like, old. Boy, Kirk is vain. <laughs> he keeps his old uniform just in case. Exactly. Just, just in, in case, case he gets promoted again. While I'm out here. Yeah. Uh, so that's really all I have to say about it. What do you guys say? What else? Uh, let's say? see. I might have uh, – uh, the only thing I have is two questions. One, when they picked her up from Plinkin – colony and are, are heading back to the main planet they don't know about this healing trance and and i was wondering why wouldn't they just call ahead and say hey plinkins do you have healing trances i mean it, it's like <laughs> they're just a phone call away uh that that i didn't understand maybe because they were supposed to be secretive and stuff but i mean but still that was all that was all before they found out about the treachery and the other thing is is if the Plinkins brainwashed her from an early age to to perform this role, and also did the same thing to the other ninety nine people, but knew that they were going to die, uh, why did they leave the chip in the dead people's body? Why wouldn't they just kill ninety nine normal people and leave their bodies? It just seemed like yeah. a big liability to leave brainwashing chips into the corpses. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and and all the, the these other bodies. I mean. I mean, they're not going to say anything. I mean, if you know you're going to... This is part of your point, I'm sure. If you know you're going to kill 99 people, it's like, why bother implanting chips in them? I, I agree right. with you. Unless they tried to brainwash all of them, and she was the, the best candidate. And so they just killed right. all the other ones. So the other ones must have been pretty bad, because she was not a... <laughs> she, they're, they're, they really had to work some kinks out of this, uh, this brainwashing chip. <laughs> right. I mean, it didn't work that well. It didn't work quite frankly. at all. Well, it did work. I mean, she was mouthing off the stuff on the planet, but you could obviously tell she was totally freaked. Yeah, it was and, more confusion than anything else. Right, but she was she was mimicking her her, her lines. Um, it's just all those fitful dreamings and whatever that was going on. Right. That 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 gave them a clue that's more more is going on here. All right. And yep. Little did they know they would have mind-melding Vulcans aboard. Uh, again, convenient. Convenient. They definitely need a Vulcan on every starship ever. They they need a Data and they need a, a Vulcan. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, definitely a next-gen time period. They should be, you know, if there wasn't technical difficulties, they should be like cranking off Data copies like crazy. And I never really bought the technical difficulties. If you can replicate anything, why yep. can't you replicate an Android? Well, you can't replicate gold press latinum, can you? Uh, you can. It just, uh, I guess it tastes different. I don't know. Tastes different. Because <laughs> <laughs> then they always bite it. Didn't Cork always bite it? And he's like, oh, oh uh, I got you. I think they had mentioned from time to time there were some things that you couldn't replicate. But right. whatever, who knows? It's all what, a TV show. They're making up whatever. They whatever want. was convenient for the plot. Exactly. Yeah. All right, like that was all like my comments. Making things up. You uh, ready to go into the one-off? 
I'm ready, man. All right, so this is issue number 29 called The Price of Admission, and it came out March of 1992. Uh, the writing staff was a little different. I think the penciler and the writer are different. Everything else might be the same, but I'll do them all just in case. Uh, we have Timothy DeHaas as the writer, James W. Fry as the penciler. He's He's been there before. The inker is a gentleman by the name of Bud LaRosa. And then the normal letterer of Bob Panaha, colorist Tom McCraw, and editor Robert Greenberger. The cover has – basically it's four pictures. The very bottom is a picture of an odd-looking alien guy with elephant feet, an insect-type face, and four tentacle arms on each side of his, his body. And all eight of these tentacle arms are kind of writhing around him. Almost snake-like. Above this weird little creature is three panels of art. The one on the left is a picture of Kirk looking off to the side. Uh, the middle one shows a yellow woman's face. And then below her is a green alien man's face. And then the right panel is a picture of Spock. And then above all this, we see a logo called Endangered Species. So the story starts off with Kirk taking the Enterprise to investigate the planet Zuna. It seems that the Federation observer that was assigned to that planet uh, has not reported in for the last 18 months. She was assigned to the planet to create a report about the citizens in support of an application for membership in the Federation. So upon arriving in orbit, Spock notes that the industry of the planet has blossomed in the last five years. The urban areas that were once exclusive to the southern continent has nearly engulfed the large northern continent. Kirk and McCoy wonder why the Observer never reported any of these changes over the last five years, and quite impressed with the level of advancement. So the leader of the Zuna people contacts Kirk. He is a green-skinned alien, and he goes by the name of Drama Zahn. He welcomes them to his planet. When Kirk asks about the Federation Observer, he tells them that he can meet with her once they arrive on the planet and after a short tour. In a small room on the planet, a yellow-skinned woman is lying on a bed, and she's being informed by three thuggish-looking Zunas, or Zunians, however you want to call them, that a Starfleet vessel has arrived. She threatens to tell them everything, but they laugh at her. And they say that she cannot do that because if she does, she will be breaking the Prime Directive. These are, these are nasty little dudes. About an hour later, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock are on the planet and speaking with Zahn and his aides. Zahn and his aides are bragging about their industrial revo revolution over the last five years uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. Spock asks why they just recently started mining the land and avoided it for the thousands of years beforehand. Zahn states that they never had a need to, for the resources there until after they applied for the Federation membership and that they wanted to investigate their planet fully to see what all they had to offer. In fact, it seems that they actually do have a lot to offer because they found a very rare mineral called Hockingite. Spock explains to McCoy that Hockingite is a very rare substance that is only known to exist on two planets, and only one of those planets is Federation planet. 
And this material is used for computer memory cores to make them super, super powerful. Uh, he also states that the Hawkingite here on this planet is the most pure that they've ever encountered before. While they're continuing their tour of the city, McCoy notices a dumpster with bodies in it. The uh, Zuna guy that he's talking to tells McCoy that uh, those are bodies of some vermin that come in and destroy their crops. So they just kill them and throw them away. Before he can go further into his explanation, the yellow-skinned woman from earlier comes in and says, that's what they want you to think. So we find out that she's actually the Federation Observer, and her name is Marina Dora. And Zahn informs the captain that she is under arrest. Uh, he tells them that she was trying to stop them from mining the Hawkingite, and that she has been put under arrest for quite some time. Kirk asks to speak with her alone, but Zahn refuses. He eventually lets, him, uh, lets Kirk ask a few questions. And Dora tells them about how the inhabitants, uh, or tells them about the inhabitants that are in the dumpsters. They are actually an intelligent uh, race that lives in the northern hem hemisphere, and the Zynans are slaughtering them in order to get to the Hawkingite. Kirk asks to visit these creatures in their natural habitat. Zahn refuses Kirk's request, and when Dora counters, she soon swoons and faints. McCoy says she's having a cardiac arrest. Kirk demands to take her to the Enterprise. Zahn is reluctant at first, but eventually allows it as long as he's, uh, she's escorted by one of his guards. In the Enterprise sickbay, McCoy is scanning her body and says that he detects some strange bacteria. He asks the guard that came along with him if he can scan him as well to compare the results and so that he can devise a treatment against this bacteria. Uh, once he's done his scans, he, Kirk, and Spock go off into McCoy's office. There, McCoy shares his findings. He drops a big bombshell on everybody and reveals that the yellow-skinned alien woman is not human. Kirk and Spock are equally shocked. They ask how McCoy knows she is not human. And then I'm thinking, let me guess, is it the yellow skin? But no. He tells them that her internal organs are all in the wrong place. That's how he knows she's not human. So Kirk is obviously suspicious now, so he orders Chekhov to escort the Zunin guard out, and no matter what he says. And he finally gets some alone time with Dora. Once the guard is gone, she reveals that she's actually one of the creatures uh, like the ones in the dumpster. They are a peaceful people. And then the Zunans came in and tried to take over their land and slaughter her people, all for the Hawkingite. She is actually named Banam, and she was a friend of the real Dora. One night, the Zunans were chasing Dora and Banam. They fired their phaser and hit Dora. As she was dying, she, she Dora, told Banam to take on her form and escape. She then put a phaser to her chin and fired and disintegrated herself. And as she's disintegrating, Banam takes her form so that she looks exactly like Dora did. Kirk and the Enterprise crew then pay a visit to Banam's people. And I think their name is Batin. Yeah, so they uh, pay a visit to Banam's people. When they arrive, Banam reverts back to her insect octopus arm type form and rejoices with her people. After a short time, Kirk 
says it's time to travel back, and she changes back into the yellow-skinned alien woman. Kirk tells her that he will not reveal her true identity to Zahn and his people, but she will have to be put on trial based on Zuna's laws, as Dora would have been. So they travel back to the city, and Kirk tells Zahn that he is convinced that the creatures are intelligent. Zahn says that Dora's crimes will result in an immediate execution. He pulls out his phaser, ready to shoot her on the spot. Kirk says that whatever action he takes now will be looked upon by the Federation committee. He also states that if the planet is accepted into the Federation, then the Batin race will have just as much right to the planet as the Zunians, and that uh, they will be the ones in control of the Hawkingite, since it is on their land. Zahn threatens that the Federation might not be the only ones interesting in the Hawkingite, perhaps the Romulans. But before he can explain more, Dora screams, No! and attacks him. They fall behind a counter, and the phaser discharges. Uh, a short time later, Zahn stands up and tells Kirk that they have nothing else to discuss. Kirk asks for a minute alone with the leader. Once the Federation and Zuna representatives depart, Kirk asks Zahn if he is now Banam. Zahn states that he does not know what he's talking about and perhaps he should just leave it alone. Kirk does not and he keeps talking and Banam eventually admits that he has taken over Zahn's body and that he will be working as Zahn to do what he can for the Batin people. Kirk wishes him luck, and they shake hands. And then the next panel has a picture of the Enterprise zooming off, saying next week starts a four-part series, or next month. Right. So, like I said, this was a one-off. Had nothing to do with the one before, the one after, so... Which is fine. Yeah, which is normally fine. If it's... Decently written and executed. Which, Man, they were... it, it's it, it's okay, but it just it just it just struck me just a weird issue. I just can't get over them being surprised she's not human, <laughs> and she doesn't look human at all. Her facial structure doesn't really look human. It's not like it's just a oh, it's she, she's humanoid, right? So, but but uh, completely right, not human. Especially if you see some of the initial pictures or the initial drawings of her. Almost looks like she's got some kind of weird curvatures to her head and maybe her arms and stuff. And maybe that was her outfit. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it just... But she has the big triangle on her forehead, which could be a tattoo. But then yep. it does look like she has some sort of brow thing going on. That definitely does not yeah. make her look human. Well, and the shade of red hair she's got, that's not natural. But I will also say that in many sci-fi stories, some Larry Niven stories about the far future Earth, where skin coloring is a common thing. You know, everybody's right. everybody's coloring their skin purple this year. It's like it's like ah, I was, I'm reading about this. I'm going like ah, I hate that kind of stuff. What are you talking about? People are natural colors. You don't change your skin color. But it's like well, unless you're Michael Jackson. But yeah, yeah, this could be. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I've read books where, where it was the same thing, where you could, you know, have your skin died or or changed i think you could just take a what was that where they could just take a pill and then they would their their change coloration their pigment, would change change their pigment or whatever yeah. yeah like a temporary thing i can't remember what it was now but anyways yeah it, that's nothing new but i don't think that's what they were going for here or at least that's not what i was getting yeah yep. and speaking of yellow people on the 
on page two. Okay. On the bridge when Kirk and Spock are talking and they're on the bridge and McCoy's kind of standing behind them. There's a green-skinned man with blonde hair and then there's a yellow-skinned woman with blue hair on the bridge. Yeah, and a nice short right. uh, skirt on and uh, looking like nice legs but very yellow. But I'm assuming they're alien and not human. Yeah. And just because you're a Federation observer, that doesn't mean you have to be human. Exactly. So I don't know. It's not a Homo Sapiens only club. What's that? It's not a Homo Sapiens only club. Right. Obviously it was a mistake, but I don't know if it was a mistake on the colorist that colored her the wrong color. Or it was a mistake on the letterer who didn't put humanoid and put human. I don't know. I think that's more like it. Which one? The latter. Oh, okay. The last one you said. It, it's more like there's a script, there's a script problem there. Right. Because obviously the art people didn't talk to the <laughs> didn't talk to the scriptwriter. Then I don't know. At some point they decided to make her look very non-human looking. Yeah, I thought she was a Nazgul. Tell you the truth, like uh, Salas people. Yeah, I mean that's right. what she looked like. She has like bit. the brow thing and the red hair and the yellow skin. Right. But then I was like, well, Nazgul aren't Federation members, so there wouldn't be a Federation observer. Exactly. But it wasn't. It was a human. Didn't know. (laughs) Uh, And if I may comment on the drawing, I mean, even though we've seen James Fry's work before, there's something about this style, the, the artistry in here, which is not familiar to me. It's at times it seems almost a bit overly stylized. Like, you know, and other times it just seems like bad art. Yeah, like like it doesn't have as much detail as it should. Exactly, right. Or things are in weird shadows where like half their face is just shadow for no reason. Yeah. Exactly, like, like, like that one of Uhura. Which one? Like on page two. Oh, you're back on page two. I am. So uh, basically... so so page her, two? Five, sorry. Oh, okay. Say, uh, four, actually. Four. Right, so her, yeah. Yeah, so her right eye is perfectly, you know, you can see her eye, no problem. And then her, her left eye is completely in shadows. But, but so is the side of her face. So maybe that's just the way the light was supposed to be. But it just seems a little, I don't know, a little artsy-fartsy, a little... Um, on the next page, uh, one of the aliens, the green aliens, I mean, his complete, his entire face is pretty much black, blacked out in shadow. Yep. So it's, you know, it's just weird shading decisions, unexpected shading decisions. Agreed. And if you look at page eight, yeah, it there's a picture of Spock right there in the middle. I agree. He's talking I to the it. aliens, and yep. it's like I am assuming half his face is supposed to be shadowed because they didn't draw an eyeball at all, <laughs> and yet it's just this big blotch of skin color. But well, he's missing an eyeball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the shadows are strong in this world and on the Enterprise. In this issue, I should say, I guess. Anyway, yeah, and, it's, and, it just, it's off, and I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan either. And that's fine if, you know, stylistically, whatever, they want to do things a certain way, that's fine. But I, sure. it's got to be likable by the consumers, and I don't think we like it. <laughs> it's just a one-off, so I guess we'll have to just live with yeah. it. And can I also mention that the burrowing aliens look like they've got huge, thick elephant legs mm-hmm. 
going into a weird tubby kind of body and then no neck and and then the tentacles it's like it looks ridiculous on the cover <laughs> i mean when i first saw that at the bottom of, of the cover it's like i was looking at that thing going wow that is really alien and that's really kind of ridiculous looking but then when you saw them in the story and they looked exactly the same your opinion was changed not much. I'm just saying that that's the. F- <laughs> it's just that the first that was the first exposure I had to that particular alien, and how right. they were being depicted. Yeah. And I just it, thought it was ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and that they have the they look ridiculous as their natural form. But then when you see them being able to shapeshift into, you know, these perfectly looking humanoid type right. forms, you're like. Why do you stay as the stubby guys that can't talk and get killed when you can? Yeah, I mean, do a, a humanoid and, and actually converse with the, your attackers. Yeah, yeah. I, turn into the green guys. I mean, take care of some of their identities. You know, get into the government, which is what or, they're finally doing, I guess. Or just turn into somebody that can actually speak up for yourself. Because <laughs> I, I, I kind of get the feeling like maybe they really don't know that they're intelligent. That that they could, have never had a conversation with them because they're you know insects. Well, and, because when and, they're in their normal form, they never talk to Kirk, they never talk to anybody. It's yeah. so I'm wondering maybe they just can't talk in their natural form. Well, but they can easily shapeshift. So it's like i think the other half of that i mean maybe some of what you're saying is true because they're not even trying to communicate but i think they tried to communicate and i think these these green skinned alien guys are are just jerks yeah i mean they they, they want the power they they want the mineral and they see the mineral as the way to get it and you know they think they're gonna laugh all the way to the bank but yeah right and i take back a little bit what i said because when um when the real dora is about to kill herself but um off screen but still in its tentacle form does say no it actually has a word balloon going off to one of the tentacles so obviously they can speak if they yeah. wanted to so right. never mind they are little they those those green guys are truly truly bad guys <laughs> they are i was trying to give them a little bit of uh a, a, a little bit of uh credit there but nope they're not they're they're jerks no. They're nasty jerks, quite frankly, uh, a lot like that minister was in the previous issue. <laughs> but here, at least, the the confrontation didn't seem quite as abrupt and off-screen as yeah. the conclusion of that one did. This was a nice little 20-something page book, and it had a beginning, ending. It worked. It's not good, but <laughs> it, it worked in that it didn't just suddenly have a... Oh, by the way, I mean, we fixed everything while yeah. while you were gone. Wrap it all up <laughs> at a breakneck speed. Yep. Right. Well, I got nothing else to say about this issue, <laughs> except that I'm ready to move on to the next one. Uh, my only comment was, and I don't know, I, I I couldn't get to my actual book. It's it's uh, packed up right now. But if you look, and so I'm looking at the DVD scan that I think we both have. If you look at page 19, I don't know if this was just a imperfection on the, the book that they scanned in. But when the alien creature sees Banam in, in her humanoid-looking form, yeah. they drew these weird little – there's these little <laughs> beams coming out of his eyes. 
Well, it almost looked like antenna at first. But he doesn't have antenna. I know. But I'm just saying like, it kind of looks like that. It does. And where it... is that going? It's like it's like he's staring straight at her breasts. And these are like little like eyeball beams or something. I don't know. <laughs> it does look weird. It looks weird, and I don't know if it was just a smudge or something on the scan. Uh, when I get... When I'm able to get to my actual book, I'll see if my book has the same thing. But it it just seemed weird. It doesn't look like a smear. <laughs> but it didn't bleed through to the next page, so it's not like it's a uh, like ink, like ink or issue. Something. I don't know, man. I don't know. Weird. That well, is weird. He was just really checking out her breasts. He's uh, like, I guess so. I might not want you to turn back into an insect thing. <laughs> anyway, so that was my last comment. Yeah, I get the I get the feeling these insect elephant leg guys aren't much into breasts. I don't think they're breast men. Yeah. I just don't think it. Actually, because they haven't seen them. That <laughs> could be. <laughs> they could be converted. Right. Okay. I think that guy might have been right there. Okay. Could be. Could be. Could be the explanation. Issue number thirty. Shall we? Let's do it. This one's titled Veritas. The writer is Howard Weinstein. Oh yes, uh, April. 1992 is the date, published date. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Letters, Bob Panaha. Inker is Alve. Colorist is Tom McGraw. And editor is Robert Greenberger. The cover shows Ohura and Sulu looking concerned over witnessing an attack of a small man by a larger one. The man, who we only see in the shadows, is threatening the smaller man with a gun. The lettering in the upper right-hand corner of the page says, What they see may mean their death. The issue opens, showing the Enterprise approaching a very large space station owned by the Quatrin, a non-Federation member world. This well-equipped station is popular on the rendezvous location where they will meet the USS Jonathan Levy to transfer perishable plant samples. The salmon-colored space station is quite impressive-looking and appears to be made up of spheres connected by rectangular conduits. Off-duty personnel on the Enterprise will be granted a brief shore leave on the station. Sulu and Uhura are on shore leave, walking in a forest housed in a glass dome. We find out that Nina, Chekhov's niece and Sulu's temporary love interest, has left the Enterprise on a research internship and Sulu is blue over it. Ohura is doing what she can to relieve his problems with a back rub. Sulu makes the disclosure that Ohura is always accompanied by Sulu or Chekhov on shore-leave chopping expeditions due to Captain's orders ever since she came back to the Enterprise with a treble. So, big reveal there. Ohura wants to beam back to the ship from where they are, but Sulu talks her into making a game of them getting back to the original beam-down location. Since they are thoroughly lost on the massive space station, the game will be challenging. After more walking and no progress, they hear a scuffle and a person scream out. When they investigate, they witness three Quattrini police or soldiers or something in long brown coats standing on a civilian named Bokan. They call him a terrorist, and they say they can't wait to turn him over to them. Them, it turns out to be, is Colonel Gavak and three fellow soldiers. They talk a bit with the first three brown-coated soldiers, and in the end, the colonel 
takes the unexpected action of shooting the prisoner and the three brown-coated policemen. With the dirty deed done, the soldiers transport out. Ahura and Sulu leave their observation place behind some crates and attempt to help the sole survivor, one of the soldiers. They transport to the Enterprise where McCoy does what he can for the survivor. Kirk decides to keep the soldiers' presence on the Enterprise a secret until they can find out more about who and why the attack took place. In the conference room, Kirk, Spock, Chekhov, Uhura, and Sulu discuss the situation. Sulu confirms all the participants looked like they were Quatrini. Chekhov asks why would one group of Quatrini agents kill another group. Kirk decides to forward Uhura and Sulu's report on the incident to the station administrator named Lojana. After she reads it, she says she is shocked. Normally, the station is a quiet place with very few incidents of violence. Kirk asks about the supposed terrorist Bakken. Lojana explains that Bakken was a rather notorious terrorist that must have been captured on Beta, judging by the cold weather gear of the agents that were dead and lying around where Bakken was. We find out Beta is the frigid fourth world of the Quatrin system that was unsettled until 500 years ago when members of the lower worker class from Quatron were dispatched there to live and work. In the hostile conditions, they mined the vast resources that enhanced Quatrin's wealth. Kirk asks if he can send Chekhov down to examine the crime scene, and Lojana allows it. Her own investigation team from Quatron is still in transit to the station, so she says, why not? Kirk visits Bones in the sickbay and finds out that the survivor is in bad shape, but could be much worse since the other three people took the brunt of the impact of the attack. Bones has patched him up as well as he could and is letting the natural healing process do the rest. McCoy confirms he cannot be questioned by anyone yet. At the crime scene, Chekhov and Sulu are looking around when a very large and burly set of quatrons enter the room, loudly asking what they are doing tampering with the crime scene. Chekhov stands up to the much larger quatron, Blowhard, when the brute's boss apparently enters. The boss's name is Prusk, and he is the director of the Quatron Security Agency. He says he read the report from Sulu and Ohura. Though polite, he says the seriousness of the incident means they must all leave the area immediately. Chekhov objects, saying the report omitted the fact that one of the agents survived. Prusk requests his immediate return, so Chekhov suggests that he take it up with Captain Kirk on the Enterprise. Prusk does just that, and later on the Enterprise, he is discussing the situation with Captain Kirk. Prusk asks Kirk, if he can see the surviving agent immediately. Kirk states McCoy says it's out of the question until he is out of critical condition. Prusk explains that Bokan was a vicious ringleader of an illegal insurrectionist group that wanted independence for Beta based on claims they were being oppressed. Kirk asks if they were being repressed, to which Prusk says, of course not. They're workers, and as such are not slaves. Workers are a lower layer of the stratified Quatrin society, but they are well paid, and the layered society model has worked well and adapted through the decades. 
Completing his unconvincing explanation of why Bakken was a threat, Press goes on to say he was handed over to his special forces team and remanded to Quatron for trial. Press claims that Bokan's own people interfered with their plans by killing him to keep him from revealing strategic secrets. Moving on from that unlikely assertion, Kirk says in accordance with the Prime Directive, they will return the Quadrini agent when his health permits it. In response, Prusk says, since Sulu and Ahura are the only witnesses to a crime committed under Quatrini jurisdiction, he is taking them into protective custody. Prusk says they will be taken to testify before a board of inquiry and then return to the Enterprise. The whole thing should take less than a half a day. Spock points out that Federation statute bounds them to comply with the local authorities on such matters. Cook agrees and Prusk says they can leave immediately. After Sulu and Ahura depart in a shuttle with Prusk, Kirk and McCoy finally speak to the injured Agent Ketter. He tells them they were not attacked by terrorists. They were attacked by special agents. Ketter recognizes one of them from his basic training class. Ketter returns to unconsciousness. Kirk says to McCoy that if Prusk's men did carry out the execution and Prusk knows about it, then he might have just sent Ohura and Sulu on a one-way trip. To be continued. But at least they're together. They are together, and it appears as if Ohura is probably digging it. Right. Yeah, it's also a little sad, because this came out, Star Trek VI was, was already out, so we know that Sulu's time on the Enterprise is limited. Mm-hmm. So why try to build up a relationship? I don't know. Uh, but also, apparently, it shifts to an interest in Scotty that appears to be mutual. Well, the Scotty in the thing movie. was in Star Trek V, which, at the beginning of this series, they addressed that and, and kind of killed it pretty quick. I think that was in issue number one right. or two. Well, that's really unfortunate. I agree with you, that she seems to be bouncing from guy to guy. Right. Exactly. You've got to go and get it's yourself a man. Well, yeah, uh-huh. at least in the new continuity, she does. Oh, she does. <laughs> yes, she does. Right. But anyways, in this continuity, it just seems weird they're trying to fan that relationship. And it's weird that Nina is just sent off and out of the story off screen. Yeah, but then, you know, you got the setup for this with how bad she looked. <laughs> you think stress. that was a, that was supposed to tie into this? I think that totally tied into it. Totally. No, that it didn't. that helped. It did. It helped explain why she left. She just got to the Enterprise. She was excited to be there. Exactly. She was there and then with, suddenly she, she was, was really there with ex- with her big bro or big uh, cousin Chekhov or uncle, whatever. And then she even had a romance going with Sulu. She had every reason. Well, not about every reason. She had a lot of reasons to stay. Right, and then they someone decided, oh, she wasn't in last issue, so we can just get rid of her. Right, and I and I think that the haggard look of her in the previous issue, I think, was part of the setup to say, you know, this was more stress than she was expecting. Oh, I I think you're reading too much into it. Well, you can think that, but you can't prove it. I'm not. I am. 
<laughs> if if she comes back next issue and says, "Oh yeah, by the way, I left because I couldn't handle it," <laughs> then I'll I'll buy it. That's fine. You know, the great thing about literary tomes like this is you can read into it you want. Right. And I've told you what I read into it. But let's say let's say you were reading these off the stands. Uh-huh. Do you think two months later you're going to remember how haggard she looked two months ago? These people care about continuity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, no, obviously they do. I mean, they're... They, you know, they build up a lot of things that go along. Probably yeah. more so when Peter David was doing, you know, all the writing. Right. But I, I, I really I get think... the feeling that they were probably told not to pursue that for whatever reason, and they just dropped it. That's how they dropped it. Well, that or else they were teeing things up for the Ohura Sula romance. Yeah, maybe. Because she did say, be you know, a couple issues ago when he was hot to trot for this. Right. That yeah. That she's always seen him that way, or something like that. Yeah. Or she she just wasn't happy about it. Right. Well, last issue she wasn't happy about it, but earlier when he first started flirting with Nina, she made a comment that she would be stupid not to see him the same way she does, or something like that. Oh, I don't remember that. So it was kind of alluded to then, but anyways, just seems weird that it was done off screen. I, I would have liked to have a scene with with her actually saying, "I'm leaving." Yeah, but, you know, things move fast in the Star Trek world. Yeah, it's true. R.J. Blaze, you know. Well, we all know why she left, because Gene Runberry told her that. We don't have to go over that again, but yes. Told him that, hey, drop it. Yeah. And I'm sure that's probably why this got dropped, too. But that's just me guessing. Right. Anyways, what what else you got? This point I was very confused on. After the massacre, near the beginning of the issue... It looked like it was Bakken that had survived, not one of the brown coats. And I'm going to call them brown coats because, you know, the jackets look the same as uh, on, on Serenity, on, uh, on Firefly. <laughs> but, and I went back and looked. It looked like the guy they were helping up did not have a brown coat at all. He was wearing the same outfit as Bakken was, or the same shirt anyway. And he even looked a little bit like, like Bakken, and, or Bakan, whatever. And they even referred to him as the little guy. And definitely yeah. ba- Bakken was smaller than any of the other guys. Uh, my synopsis was actually calling the survivor Bakken all over the place. And then about midway, they start referring to him as your agent survived. You know, this is when, when Chekhov first says it. And when right. I first read that, it was like, what? Okay, so is this part of Kirk's orders to keep it under wraps that Bakken survived? It's like, hmm, and I keep on reading, and sure enough, they even call him Agent Ketter at the end. Right. So well, if you look at page nine, there's one guy kind of sitting on the floor wearing green pants and an orange shirt. Right, exactly. He, Bakken. He's the one that lives. Well, and that's Bakken. He doesn't have a jacket on. He doesn't have a, a, a brown coat on. That's Bakken? Yeah. Right, exactly. So he's on the ground because he was just he was just trying oh, to get right. up he, from being on yeah, the he ground. Was, he was getting beat up. He was getting beat up, man. All those agents that went ahead and grabbed him, they all have brown coats on. Right, 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 right. No, you're right. And then if you look where he's trying to help the sole survivor up, the guy going, ooh, uh, on page 12. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's definitely got like a pink shirt on. He doesn't right. have a brown brown jacket on. Nope. Maybe it's a uh, maybe he's misleading him. 
<laughs> I don't know. You're right. Know. You're right. But but you see, he's got the goatee and everything, kind of uh-huh. uh, facial hair. Right. It looks and definitely like at definitely at the end, the the Ketter guy supposedly, he's got the same facial hair. Well, was uh, was he supposed to be under undercover or something? I I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't make sense. So that threw me off. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, if I was paying close enough attention, it would have thrown me off too. Because you're right, it doesn't make sense. Well, when you need to do the synopsis, you notice things. Because <laughs> here I am at the beginning saying, "Boken, they're held Boken out. You know, Boken survived. You know, blah 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 blah." And then all of a sudden, it's like, "Agent, wait a minute. <laughs> his his name's Ketter? What? Ah! Right. Yeah, kind of like how my synopsis always referred to as the yellow-skinned alien, and kind of find out she was human. <laughs> Right, right, exactly, right, right, there you go. <laughs> and and I didn't notice the part about them referring to her as human or, or oh, being surprised you... about her not being human. Oh, you didn't I even notice, they... you didn't catch that part. I didn't catch that. I mean, I know they were surprised that she wasn't, you know, the Federation citizen that, that she supposedly was. Right. But I didn't, I didn't catch the idea that they were <laughs> thinking, thinking she was human. Right. Maybe in the future everybody's colorblind. Maybe. Maybe they put these comic books together pretty quick and they just make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So uh, I got a question for you. Who's Jonathan Levy? Interesting question. Did you look it up? I tried. I didn't find anything. Okay. Well, I have no idea who Jonathan Levy is, but I definitely thought I got to look him up and I never right. did. Yeah. When I first read this, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's somebody that I'm supposed to know. Right. And I, exactly. I did a search on the Star Trek websites, and it only referred to this comic book. And then I did a search on the World Wide Web, and there's a lot of people named Jonathan Levy out there, nah. like <laughs> on LinkedIn and things like that. But I couldn't find, and, and you know, you couldn't find a famous person. I couldn't find you know a famous person, right? There's so there's a Harvard professor named Jonathan Lincoln, <sighs> but I doubt it. That's Jonathan who Levy. this guy is. Yeah, well, maybe it's a future famous person. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you can always get at that, or maybe he's maybe he's the cousin of somebody. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of like the Kelvin in the 2009 movie being named after J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams' uncle or something. Oh, is that what? The, is that right? Harry Kelvin or something like that was his name. Oh, that's funny. And so uh, I guess he's passed on now, and they named the first ship you see, a Federation ship, uh, after him. I did not know that. That's so that's pretty... why it's the Kelvin, which I thought was a cool name. Well, it's, it's a form of temperature. It, it's a measure of heat, right? Right. I thought that's what they were naming because it's well, as as Khan says, it's very cold in space. <laughs> yes. Anyways. Yeah, you know, at the end, did they really need to talk to Ketter? At the end, I mean, really, for Kirk to say, you know. They have one set of agents killing another set of agents, and it pretty much looks like that was what happened. Right. It's like, you can't trust these people. And who's the head of all the agents? Ah, Prusk. Oh, and he's just asked to take (laughs) two of your officers, which are the only people that witnessed the event. Did you really have to wait until you talked to Ketter to figure out that it was really not a good idea to let those two go with Trusk? I don't know. Right, that was a pretty boneheaded move on Kirk's part. Completely, or Prusk, not Trusk. 
it's like, come on. I mean, I know you got to get the story moving in the right direction, or else it's going to be a short story arc. But it's like, uh. yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever read this story, so I don't know where where it's ultimately going to go. But uh, it, you know, it, it, that last little bit was just a. The hook to get you to buy the next issue. No, oh, I guess it's just well they needed they needed that to happen. They, they needed Sulu and Ahura to be in mortal danger like that. Right. So they had to do it. It's just, and I know that what they tried to say is that finally that you know that agent Ketter confirming that they were not terrorists that attacked them. It was really other security guards or security agents. I know they're trying to say that oh that's the trigger thing where finally Kirk knows for sure. But it's like, how stupid are you, Kirk? Anyway. Come on. Right. I know bonehead. you're smart. He's a bonehead in this one. Hmm. Bones and bonehead. Sure, go. take my senior officers. Well, you know, if they had Spock in the issue more, I think they wouldn't have made those kind of mistakes. <laughs> have you noticed how Spock hasn't really done much in issues lately? Well, he did the mind meld in the first one this week. Yeah, but other than that, not that much. Well, he was, I don't think. He was our... Our explanation of Hawking tonight. Oh, that is important. But in this issue, <laughs> really, he didn't say boo. He didn't say much. Yeah, you're right. And, he... and and thinking about the other issues, I don't think he said that much either. I mean, I, I know you just went ahead and mentioned a few things where, where he was chipping in and stuff. But the stories don't seem to be uh, giving Spock much love in the scripts, mm. I think. Yeah. Observation of mine. I mean, I think they're trying to – maybe they're trying to give other people more, well, like Sulu like, like in Kirk, this one. and Like Kirk and McCoy? It's like, geez. Well, but Sulu was in this one more, and Chekhov was in the last issue more than normal. So yeah. maybe they're just trying to spread it out a little bit. I don't know. Perhaps. It's just I, – I just remember back to those Gold Key comics <laughs> where it seemed like it was pretty much, you know, the Spock show. The Spock show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Spock's making decisions for the entire crew in the Federation uh, without even talking to Kirk. And Kirk is just saying, oh, good idea, Spock. It's like, oh. So this is the other extreme. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I kind of miss those gold key. We need to do another one. Oh, why do you miss them? I don't know. They just have a certain uh, charm. Charm. Yeah. yeah. We do have to get through a lot of them. <laughs> Uh, that's actually my last note. I didn't really have a lot on this one. That's all I had to say, too. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, uh, let's just hurry up and do the, uh, elsewhere in the expanded universe. Um, this is, uh, for whatever reason, we did February of 92 last time we did original series. So just March and April this, this time around. Okay. March had a, uh, original series novel called Faces of Fire by Michael J. and Friedman. Have you heard of him? I've heard of him. So this this book is based in the original series era, and it has on the cover, it's funny because it has a picture of old style Kirk with a modern Klingon, which I have a hard time buying that. You know, it's the bumpy-headed Klingon with exactly. the uh, gold-suited sh- Kirk. Right. But anyways, uh, but the story actually sounds interesting. It's, like I said, set up during the original series timeline. Carol Marcus and David Marcus are in it. David's a little a little tyke. And uh, basically they uh, are attacked by Klingons and held 
at ransom or something. Uh, I don't really have a lot of details on it, but uh, it it sounds pretty interesting. Hmm. I'd be curious to read it to see how they deal with Kirk interacting with David, right? And not you know maybe give some insight on Kirk's thoughts on having to be a uh, absent father, right? And Michael Jan Friedman's fairly good writer. <laughs> that was sarcasm. I really like him. <laughs> and his novels are usually really good. Yeah. All right. So in April, uh, there was an original series novel called Probe by Margaret Wander Bonanno. This was one of their hardcover novels. Uh, I've actually read this one. It's actually pretty good. It's kind of cool because it's based after Star Trek V, maybe right before Star Trek VI-ish timeline. But it has to do with the probe from Star Trek IV. So, you know, at the end of Star Trek IV, the probe just talks to the whales, turns around, and, and flies off. And we never hear from it again. It's just gone out of the universe. But come to find out, it's not. And uh, it, it, it was actually a pretty good story. I uh, recommend that one. So it goes out and wreaks havoc someplace else, huh? Right. And if I'm not mistaken, it, it, it uh, I think it might been a long time since I read it because I read it back in 1992 so I've slept since then so my memory's a little fuzzy on it but I, if I'm not mistaken the Enterprise goes back to investigate it on its way out of Federation space or whatever and, and, and I'm thinking it does a U-turn and starts heading back oh but uh, it, it, I, don't, I don't think it actually makes it back to Earth they don't have to talk to the whales again good Anyways, it's a good book. I, I recommend you reading it. The next novel that came out in April was the Next Generation novel called Chains of Command by Bill McKay and Elise Flood. If I'm not mistaken, no, that's somebody else. Yeah, I, I don't know either one of these authors, but in this issue or this novel, Captain Picard and Counselor Troy are kidnapped by some rebels and that then draws the Federation into the middle of a deadly plan of vengeance. Ooh. So, I have not read that one, uh, nor does that little what's on the back of the cover really grab me, so <laughs> it's not going to go to the top of the list. But the uh, Faces of Fire, uh, that, that, might, that might go on my list. There you go. Cool. So that's it for the Expanded Universe. Next episode of our show 79 we'll go over the next generation what are we going to do kid next generation right we'll do the next generation episodes or issues that came out this this these three right. months so, so 28 20, through 30 yeah 28 through 30 just like this one only with next gen only with a bald guy as the captain exactly yep so that's it so uh i guess we'll uh, let everybody go hopefully this was a shorter one it's shortish, about an hour and 18 minutes running so far. Right, cool. Which is not bad, not bad. Yep. So until next week, guys, take care and talk to you later. See you later, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us 
via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.